Have you ever wondered why God sometimes seems distant? Well, this morning we will discover why and what to do about it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, and we're looking this morning from verses 22 to 25. And as we come now to God's Word, let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. So, friends, Romans chapter 4, verses 22 to 25, you'll find the passage in your worship folder. Let's hear God's Word. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's Word. Well, it's a great joy to be with you and exciting to be together in church this morning. Well, as expected, the iPhone 6 launch in September created even lengthier lines than previous new iPhones. In Chicago, the line curved around the Michigan Avenue store so far down Huron Street that it had to be split into two on the other side of the road. In New York, it wrapped around an entire city block and more, reaching nearly to 61st Street. We got the tarps for the rain, umbrellas, sleeping bags, everything, one person said. It was worth the wait. We live in the middle of a new technological age. Uh, no doubt is creating not only long lines, but benefits in terms of global connectivity. You can text someone in India. Speed of data access. Download things, find out stuff. Not to mention really fun video clips of cats in your pocket. But like all new technological developments, it is having other ramifications too. Commentators are noticing that it is making it more difficult for us to be fully present. 
to actually be completely there wherever the there is that you are. A buzz, a ping, a text, an Instagram. All calling our attention away from here to somewhere else. Now, something a bit like this was facing the Romans, though in a rather different fashion. They were a predominantly Gentile church with Jews also a part of it, and they were wrestling with what exactly the story of Abraham and the law had to do with their contemporary Christianity. How could they relate to each other, Jew and Gentile? How would they take this message of Jesus to all nations in their day and at their time? Paul has been arguing that uh, right at the heart of the gospel of God is the message of how to be justified, that is, how to be made right with God. And he's been arguing that the Bible has, in fact, always said that the way to be made right with God is through faith. That's why he's been talking about Abraham. It always was by faith. Abraham justified before God, uh, before Moses, and so he has been discussing with them. Well, now he comes to his conclusion of this stage of his argument. And if you notice carefully in your Bible, verse 23 is actually a very close mirror of verse 3 of chapter 4. It's what uh, scholars sometimes call an inclusio, which is just a fancy way of saying that it's a top and tail kind of argument, a bracket, indicating this is his main points. But as he comes then to conclude, he gives it a twist. All of this, he's saying, means it can be ours. See, that word ours is repeated three times in these few verses, and the last time, twice, and it's really the key to unlocking the purpose of what Paul is saying, indeed what God is saying through his word. See, this is not just theirs then. It is ours now. He wants them to be present, engaged, connected. It's not just about iPhones, of course. You see, right at the heart of the question of our modern world is how can we, with our science and our technology, actually know God? Philosophers have concluded that it's not possible. Very famous philosopher Immanuel Kant said that you could know the, the noumenon, the essence you, you, you couldn't know that. You could only know the phenomenon, the appearance. You couldn't have access to the reality. And so movies like The Matrix and conspiracy theories, you can't really know what's going on. 
Well, theologians uh, who conclude that, well, we've got to be more sophisticated now, not just in how we do church or how we preach, or, but in what we actually believe. We need, as uh, has been said, a new kind of Christian in order to connect. Paul has a different view. And he presents here three keys to opening the door to experiencing God ourselves now. The first key is the Bible. Look at uh, verse 22 in the first part of 23. You see there Paul was describing what was said to Abraham about being righteous by faith, that is, being justified by faith, same kind of idea. And what was said, he says, was written, about the Bible, it was written, not just for him, but for our sake. And it's a very remarkable thing for Paul to have said. Now, obviously, the Bible was not yet written when Abraham first was addressed by God. But Paul's point is that the Bible was written not just to describe a story of what happened to Abraham alone. It is also for our sake. And what that means, my dear friends, is that a Bible in the hand is worth two in the bookcase. See, as Christians, we do not just believe in the authority of Scripture, or merely the sufficiency of Scripture, we believe in its vitality. The Bible is living and active. There's power in the Word. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. This is not just a word for them then. It's for us now. Now, you and I know that these days people have lots of objections to the Bible, and we can't answer all of them in the next couple of moments, but we need to at least indicate avenues to answer them. Otherwise, we will think, well, forget it, I can't trust the Bible. So here are a few objections that people have and some quick avenues to answering those objections. Some people say the Bible has many contradictions. But when people explain to me the contradictions that they have in their mind, I find that usually what's really going on is they haven't actually understood what the passage is saying. <laughs> and if they do understand it, what emerges, if they are honest enough to be frank enough with me when I talk with them, is that the real problem is not that it contradicts itself, but that it contradicts them. You know, Mark Twain once said, uh, it ain't those parts of the Bible I cannot understand that bother me, it's the parts I do understand. Some people say the Bible has many different interpretations, so who's to say which is right? But my dear friends, saying that the Bible has uh, many different interpretations is a bit like saying that a musical instrument can make many different noises. <laughs> Some of them are unskilled noises. Some of them are tuneless noises. I play the oboe up until 16. You wouldn't want me in one of those chairs. Uh, 
Some of them are barely noises at all. Some people then interpret the Bible wrongly because they do not understand the first principle of interpretation. In the same way that the first time you pick up a violin, you're unlikely to make a tuneful noise. And then there are other people who play the tune really well and have sort of brilliant variations on the theme. But but the trumpet of the Bible always, as J.I. Packer put it, all roads in the Bible lead to Romans. In other words, the Bible is all about how to be right with God and then how to live rightly. Well, then there are people who say that the Bible is not authoritative. These people tend to be a little more sophisticated. They've studied theology or they've been in church circles. And, well, therefore they say we need a different authority for our faith. They see perhaps all the different denominations, different kinds of churches, and they wonder how we can really believe that the Bible is an authoritative word. But that seems to me to be a bit like looking at a fertile field, plentifully supplied with sun and rain, rich with nutrients, and wondering why weeds grow in it as well as wheat. Of course the Bible can be misused, just like a gun can be misused, or a sword, or a pen, or a car. That doesn't mean it has no authority or no power. In fact, it witnesses to its power, just like when those other things are misused. And it has a good authority when rightly used. It's possible that sometimes us theologians have not helped in the matter. As someone once joked to me, when there are two theologians, there are usually at least three opinions. But let me take it out of that realm and say again, this word is for you. It is for us. Listen to Martin Luther. The Bible is alive. It has hands and grabs hold of me. It has feet and runs after me. Or listen to Charles Spurgeon. I recommend, therefore, you either believe God up to the hilt or else not to believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing place between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deeps of divine revelation. A faith that paddles about the edge of the water is poor faith. At best, it is a little better than a dry land faith, and it's not good for much, so said Spurgeon. Now, I know sometimes we'll read an imprecatory psalm or some kind of challenging part of Scripture, and we'll think, well, how, really, I, I'm struggling with that, Josh. How, how can I accept all of that as from God's mouth? Reminds me a little of uh, the story of the Archbishop of Canterbury, former Archbishop of Canterbury's wife, who was once asked whether, with all the crazy schedule of her husband, whether she'd ever thought of divorcing him. And she replied very quick wittedly, saying, No, I've never thought of divorcing him, but I have thought of killing him several times. 
stick with this. Wrestle with it. My experience is that those questions that you have when you put faith in the questioning, when you stick with it, you will find it means something far more profound, not less profound. It's for us, not just for Abraham. For you, for you. Came across a piece of uh, research from uh, Lifeway, Lifeway Research Survey 2012, showed that the number one indicator of spiritual growth, wait for it, daily Bible reading. So we want to grow? Get up early, every single member of the church, read the Bible, there'll be spiritual growth. Second key to opening ourselves to experiencing God is truly to understand who God is. And that seems to me to be what Paul was saying next in the second half of verse 23 and the first half of verse 24. You'll note that he employs this key word, ours, again, second time. And uh, this time, though, it's not related to what was written, but the one who wrote it. So he says, we're to believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Paul is very careful with his phrasing here, and we need to treat it carefully. Here he's telling us that we are to be those who believe in him and talks here of Jesus as being delivered up. And so the question as we wrestle with this together is who is the him and who delivered Jesus up to die? And the only answer is that it is God the Father. You see, there is a, there is a Trinitarian <laughs> assumption here. It's important to notice that. Otherwise, you see, we... we it's possible, isn't it, to so emphasize Jesus or in such a way emphasize Jesus. I and mean, how could we emphasize Jesus too much? But to forget that as Christians, we also believe in God the Father and God the Holy Spirit as well. Perhaps that's why you sense distance. Each person of the Trinity is fully God, yet there are three persons in the Trinity. And so to be a Christian is not only to believe in Jesus in the sense that it does not mean also to believe in God the Father and, and God the Holy Spirit. So we keep this truth constantly before our minds so that we create a picture in our heads of God the Father, not as distant and uncaring, but as the one who, for God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. God the Father loves us, not just Jesus. God the Father does. God delivering Jesus to death. He was killed by the agency of men, but ultimately through the sovereign purpose of God, he was delivered. God in Christ suffered for us. God the Father suffered by giving God the Son. And the Son, as fully God, suffered. So we're not then to think of God the Father as somehow the distant God in the Trinity. 
Now, I know that keeping the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as one God and three persons sort of clear in our minds is admittedly a difficult task, but it's a necessary one if we are to open ourselves to experience the God who is there. Otherwise, God the Father, it just becomes distant, and the story of Jesus motivates us, but God... Now, it can be obvious the kind of mistakes that people make in this regard, those who say they believe in God but reject Jesus as God. Well, that's not the God of the Bible, is it? It can be a little bit more subtle. I remember one church I knew that had above the central altar a picture of the Trinity, except it was a picture of God the Father, God the Son, an equidistant, same position, same size as God the Son, there was a picture of Mary. Now, whoever painted that was not thinking very clearly. It can be a bit more subtle. It can be really quite hard to pin down and be a matter of emphasis and meaning. For instance, the phrase, it's all about Jesus. Well, at one level, yes, it is all about Jesus. But at another level, of course, we want to say, well, is it not also about God the Father and God the Holy Spirit? (laughs) It can affect our devotional life. I've met people who are comfortable addressing Jesus in prayer but find it hard to think of directly talking to God as if God the Father is somehow less caring or compassionate than the Son or vice versa or the Son is less God than the Father or... It can lead to all sorts of distant, vague notions about God who blesses us and does whatever we want, like the cynic who quipped that God is always on the side which has the best football coach, you know. God's not some distant, vague deity who applauds when we are on his side. God is the almighty, sin-hating God, but sinner-loving God, who gave his own son for us and in his person suffered on our behalf for our sins. And this God is present. It's an awesome thought. Our Listen to the Scottish theologian John Bailey, who said this before each of his lectures on the doctrine of God. We must remember in discussing God that we cannot talk about Him without His hearing every word we say. We may be able to talk about others behind their backs, but God is everywhere, yes, even in this classroom, yes, even right now. And therefore, in all our discussions, we must be aware of his infinite presence and talk about him, as it were, before his face. Wonderful phrase. Well, the third key is the cross. Look how Paul concludes with me, if you will, my friends. He says here in this beautiful, evocative phrase, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It is, though, somewhat enigmatic. What does Paul mean? Well, this is what Paul does not mean. Paul does not mean that Jesus' death does one thing and then completely separately the resurrection does something else. 
Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Paul says there that it is by Jesus' blood that we are justified. So Jesus' death and his resurrection both justify us. See, in biblical thinking, the death and the resurrection of Jesus always go together. When the Bible talks about preaching the cross, it means the empty cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus. When Paul says to the Corinthians that he determined to know nothing with them except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he he does not mean he did not preach the resurrection as well, because at the end of that letter, he reminds them of the gospel he preached, which includes the longest description of the resurrection in the whole of the New Testament. Oh, it always goes together in biblical thinking. The, The death of Jesus does not sort of do one thing and the resurrection does another He is raised for our justification, yes. But his blood is also for our justification too. They they go together. But then if Paul does not mean that the death of Jesus does one thing, the resurrection of Jesus does another, why does he phrase this verse in this way? Some people say it's just rhetoric. What it is, oratory, there is rhetoric here, but it's rhetoric with a meaning. So what is its meaning? Think of what the cross would mean if Jesus had not risen from the dead. It would mean that it had not worked, that Jesus' sacrifice was not accepted, that it did not do what Jesus had said it would do, but it did work. How do we know it worked? We know it worked because Jesus rose from the dead, right? So then how do we know that we are truly justified? It's something for ourselves. (laughs) We know it for sure because the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins was demonstrated as having been accepted, as having worked by the resurrection. See, what Paul is saying is this. You ever doubt, Christian, whether you are really Truly right with God. Well, do you believe the resurrection? If you do not, that's the first thing to get right. But believe in the resurrection as something that truly, factually happened. But say you do. A real Christian, you are. Well, then, do you, Christian, ever doubt whether you are really, truly right with God. When we begin to get to know who God is, it's, it becomes, what did Isaiah say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You're telling me, Paul, I'm right with this God? Really? How do you gain assurance that you are right with God, that you are justified? Well, was saying it's something for us, for ourselves, you listen to the Bible. That is the first key. This Bible is living and active. You interpret it properly according to the inductive method, as it's called. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it now mean for me? Then you hear God speak 
to you. It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It has hands and feet and runs after you and grabs you and says, I love you. Or says, repent. Sometimes people will come up to me after I've been preaching and say, you must have been in my shoes this week. Have you been reading my emails, my text messages? There is power in this Word. So you listen to the Bible, you read the Bible. And then you begin to grasp who God is. And that through Christ you have access to God himself, the creator of the whole universe, the massive panoply of space, the intimidating wonder of the microscopic universe, the bizarre reality of quantum physics. You believe in God and he loves, he wants you. He delivered Jesus for you. It was all his plan. But now, you still doubt. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You want to tell me, Pastor, that I am right with God? Could God truly accept an old sinner like me or a young sinner like me? I've done this, and how could he accept me into his holy heaven? How do you know? Well, the answer, Paul says, is you look at the resurrection. It worked. It is finished. It is over. The victory has been won. Now, Paul says, this is for your justification. If you believe. And that justification is as demonstrably proven as the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's what I think Paul is saying. I'm just going to conclude with a couple of questions. First one is this. Given this truth of what Paul is declaring here, that the keys for this to be ours now, not just them, then, is the Bible, who God truly is, and understanding the cross, died for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Given that, would you, would we commit to read the Bible each day? To fill our minds with the truth of who God truly is. And to believe in the cross, the death and resurrection. Would you do that? Second question. Given that reality... Given the truth of who God is... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty... 
whole earth is full of his glory, that you, if you believe, have a right standing with that God, the God. Would you then, each one reaching one, would you then put that word on your lips and reach out to your neighbors with the message of the cross? Well, we have a lot to be thankful for. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would help us to rejoice this season with thanksgiving in the reality that you are Lord and you are risen from the dead. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.